no money down, got a check, got a house. And, uh, and, and I decided early on cash flow is what I wanted. And uh, we went in, we cleaned that house up and, uh, and actually got us a, a lease option uh, option E in the house. They gave us a couple of thousand as earnest as a uh, option consideration. And we were making a couple hundred bucks a month. So I thought it was great, man. I only need about, you know, 20 of these and I won't need a job. You're listening to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show, a podcast that discusses the intricacies of real estate investing with your host, Marcus E. Maloney. Marcus is a real estate investor best known for being the equity king. He's been awarded that moniker because he and his team find amazing real estate deals. He will be talking with investors who have done some transformational things in the real estate industry. They'll discuss their process, their strategies, and how their investments transform their lives and the communities they invest in. We welcome you to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show. Hello, We Love Equity family. On today, I have a very special guest based out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. I have Mr. William Tingle. William is a subject to investor with over 20 years experience in the real estate investing industry. So he is a master facilitator, transaction engineer, and coordinator. So today we want to talk about subject to investing with William Tingle. William, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Marcus. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. All right. All right. So William, give us a little background. I know I talked a little bit. You, you, you started as a, well, you know what? I'll let you tell the story. You, you can tell us your story, man, how you got started and uh, everything like that. Okay, Marcus. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I uh, was a restaurant uh, director of operations uh, in, in Macon, Georgia in uh, 1999. I'd been in the restaurant industry for about 20 years. Uh, had a wife, couple of kids, never saw them. I was working 70 hours a week and really getting frustrated. I made decent money, but just didn't have a lot of family time. You know, I was getting a little bit older. I was uh, getting close to 40 and uh, said, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? But didn't really have a direction on which way I wanted to go. And I like a lot of people, I was up at two in the morning, just, just, just pondering life and, and what my direction would be. And a Carlton Sheets infomercial came on the television. And I'd seen that thing a ton in the past, but just for some reason that evening, I said, you know what, if those guys can do it, I can do it too. I reached over, picked up the phone, ordered the course and uh, just, just started buying houses, you know, got the course and, and, and just did what he said and bought one house and the next one and the next one and put together a plan and a year later quit my job and, and I've been a full-time investor ever since. All right, so you had a chance to quit the job. That is excellent. That's uh, what we like to hear, <laughs> you know. So tell me why, so you got the Carlton Sheets um, informational packet. What did you do? I know you started diving into it. Kind of, kind of walk us through that process. Well, you know, uh, Carlton Sheets uh, is a pretty basic program. Uh, and one of the things it tells you to do to get out and start buying houses is to actually, the toughest thing is just to cold call sellers, pick up the newspaper, go through the ads, uh, the FISBOs, and start calling and asking questions. And, and that's what I did, you know. 
the internet was still, you know, it was around, but it wasn't like it is today. There wasn't a Facebook or anything like that. I didn't have a million people that would tell me, oh, that won't work, don't do it. So I wasn't smart enough to know it wouldn't work. So I did it and, and actually started buying some houses. It's funny how things work like that. Um, but cold calling does work and we still do it to this day. So, uh, yeah. All right, so you're, you're a man that takes action and you take action quickly. You saw that infomercial and you said, okay, I need to buy this. And guys, just so you know, Carlton Sheets, that was from the late, Nights, well, actually, it even goes before then. He goes mm -hmm. all the way back to like the early 80s, late 70s. Mm -hmm. um, but you got started in the late 90s, early 2000s. So tell me about um, you took action, you got the Carlton Sheets, you started cold calling. First of all, kind of where did you get the list? Kind of walk us through that, that step of really getting started. Well, you remember now, you, you're, we're talking about over 20 years ago. I mean, yep. we didn't have some of the tools we have today, all these lists, companies, and, and things like that. Uh, I picked up a newspaper, and I turned to the for sale by owners, and, uh, and just started calling those guys. I mean, no real indicators of motivation or anything, just a house for sale. And, uh, you know, it's kind of tough. Uh, I mean, I, I got, you know, cussed out a few times and that sort of thing, but you just hang with it. It's a numbers game. You learn that over time. Uh, if you call 100, chances are you'll buy one. So I did it. If you make it through that 100, you'll probably buy a house. Uh, actually went out and I had good credit, didn't have a lot of money, but I did have decent credit. And my first couple of, of purchases were actually with small bank financing. Uh, but I actually did pick up a check at closing, you know, the difference between uh, insurance payments and this and that. There was, you know, I think my first check on my first house, I went in, the bank financed it, uh, a small local bank did, and I walked mm -hmm. away with a check, I believe, for about 800 bucks. And I said, hey, this stuff really works, you know. I got hey, a house we'll with, take that. <laughs> with no money down, got a check, got a house. And uh and, and I decided early on cash flow is what I wanted. And uh, we went in, we cleaned that house up and, uh, and actually got us a, a lease option, uh, option E in the house. They gave us a couple of thousand as earnest as uh, option consideration. And we were making a couple hundred bucks a month. So I thought it was great, man. I only need about you know 20 of these and I won't need a job. And so that's, that's what we focused on for the next 12 months. And, and that's the plan we put together, buying a couple of them a month. And at the end of that year, we had about 25 houses and uh, we replaced our job income. So that's what we did. Wow, so you guys were busy on the- Bye, bye, bye. Yep, so you guys were really working it. And man, I am really excited about that. So tell me, subject to investing, that seems like a little uh, sophisticated getting started because you know when people say subject to it's almost like you waving a magic wand and you're trying to uh you know woo somebody and put a spell over them so yeah. kind of walk us through why you chose subject to and the art of of subject to investing well i'll tell you marcus what happened was you know we bought those first two or three houses with some bank financing and that went well like i said i had good credit but what you'll find is after a little while, the banks will be a little bit more cautious in lending to you. you they'll use words like, uh, William, you, we've got a lot of exposure. We have a lot of exposure with you, yeah. which is just a nice way of saying, you know, it's a lot of money. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And if something happens, we're afraid you won't be able to pay us. So what, what I figured out pretty early on was the banks weren't going to be able to fund me or weren't, wouldn't be willing to fund me with enough money to buy enough houses to live the life that I wanted to live. I said, man, I've got to find another way to buy. So I went through the steps. I bought courses on doing sandwich lease options. And I learned early on that when you're in the middle between a seller and a buyer, uh, it can get kind of ugly. Yep. You know, things happen and, and, and so on. I didn't really want to continue doing that. I wanted to own the property. I wanted to control it. And then I discovered subject two, which is really just taking over somebody else's financing. And, you know, people talk about it like it's, it's something new or it's something, but people have been taking over payments on financing for, for years and years. In fact, you know, before the early mid eighties, most loans were freely assumable. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so so it's really nothing new under the sun. But uh, and you know, as far as it being a magic wand, if you're dealing with a motivated seller and it's presented properly, uh, most people are okay with it. Uh, you know, we we get a lot of people that aren't even distressed in any way, that aren't in foreclosure, that aren't getting a divorce. Uh, it's just an alternative that works for them. Just explaining, hey, we work a lot like a relocation company works. If you've ever read a relocation company contract, they'll come in and they take over the payments on your financing until they can sell the house. And that's exactly what we do. Wow, that's a great way to position it. And that's the first time I've ever heard it positioned that way that we're like a relocation company that we will come in you know, and take over payments until we sell mm -hmm. the house. That makes it a lot easier, you know, because one of my questions that I had for you was, you know, how do you get the seller, you know, you're talking to a stranger, they don't know you, you don't know them. How do you get them to buy into, you know, hey, I'm Joe Schmo, I'm William, I'll take over your payments, Mr. Seller. You know, kind of walk me through through that conversation. Well, you know, again, it, it, it's going to depend on the seller that you're dealing with. People that are in foreclosure and don't have anywhere else to go, they're much more likely to be okay with that. Uh, it, it's all in the presentation. This is what I tell my students. When, when you get a seller on the phone, uh, whether they've called you from your marketing, whether it's bandit signs or it's ads, or whether it's a direct mail piece that you've sent them, or even if you get somebody on the phone cold calling FISBOs on Zillow, uh, when, you, when you get those people on the phone, try to get their story. Yeah, the house is important. You're probably wanting to buy in a certain price range, certain number of beds and baths, but the story is really where the deal is. Try to find out why are you selling such a nice home? Well, uh, I'm in the army and, and I've been relocated and I have 30 days to get out of here and move. Well, you know you're dealing with somebody under pressure. Uh, maybe what you have to offer will be an option. If you've got somebody with low equity, perhaps, maybe the house is worth 200, they owe 190, they don't have enough to pay a realtor, they don't have the cash to come out of pocket. Uh, you know, listen to their story, listen to the financing details, and, and then my standard, uh, you know, way to, to get into it is say, hey, Mr. Seller, doesn't sound like we're, we have a position here to make you a cash offer, but we may have a program that'll work for you. What if we could come in and make your mortgage payments for you until we can bring a buyer in? Is that something that might work? You've already heard their story, so you pretty much know if it will work or not. And they'll generally say, well, tell me more about that. It could work for me. 
and you just explain the process. And, and it really, it's just in the presentation. Okay. So really one of the most important things that you said right there is don't try and figure out the numbers and everything like that. Really it's listen to the story, listen to the problem and you come up with some sort of a solution to solve that problem for the seller. That's absolutely right, Marcus. It's, it's all about problem solving. If you can, can solve the seller's problem, generally, no matter what you present, as long as it's, you know, not totally crazy or, or something along those lines, um, you know, if it works for them, it'll work. Okay. So kind of going through this, tell me about that, your first subject to deal, William. I know this was a while ago, um, <laughs> but kind of take us back because I want to, I want, those who are looking at this as an investment strategy to really understand what you have to do in order to mm -hmm. position the property, position yourself, you know, as somebody credible and everything like that. So kind of let's walk through this, this, the first deal. Um, we'll kind of throw out some softball numbers. If you don't remember the exacts, that's fine. Let's just kind of see um, what somebody getting started, what, what, what would they need to do? So going from step A all the way through. Well, I, I remember our, my first subject too very, very clearly. I was driving down the interstate in Macon, uh, heading home, and a, a young gentleman called me from a bandit sign. Uh, he lived in the suburban part of Macon, and he said, hey, I saw your sign that says you buy houses. I really need to sell mine. Uh, you know, would you be interested? I said, well, tell me a little bit about it. And it was a brand new house. It was less than a year old. He was a young guy. He was 21. A uh, young couple had a small child. They were getting a divorce and they had just bought the house about nine months earlier. Uh, his, his parents had gifted them $5,000 for down payment. Uh, the house was probably worth around $120,000, one twenty-five. dollars uh, They owed about one fifteen dollars or so, so really no equity. Uh, but he's telling me about the house and, and his situation. And I said, well, you know, uh, not enough room to make a cash offer here, but we might be able to do something with taking over payments. Would that work? He said, anything that'll get me out of this house. I turned, I took the next exit, turned around, and we drove straight to his house and, and met with him. Walked inside the house. The house was like brand new, uh, still had that new house smell to it. Uh, not a stick of furniture in the house. She had already moved out and he was sleeping on a mattress in the master bedroom. Uh, so, I mean, you know, you're dealing with a motivated seller. He really, he couldn't make the payment on his, really needed to sell it. He didn't have enough equity for a realtor and just didn't know what to do. It was my first sub two and, and I was totally lost with regard to what paperwork to fill out and everything. But I had my little buyer's briefcase with me with all the documents. And we went through them and figured out how to fill out a contract and everything. I was still pretty new in the business and, uh, and got that thing done and immediately sold it on a land contract with seller financing, collected a $10,000 down payment from my buyer, uh, collected a few hundred dollars a month in cash flow for about a year. They refinanced pretty quickly and it didn't have much of a back end because there wasn't a whole lot of equity. Uh, but we got, I think, about $8,000 on the back end. So we made about $25,000 off of a house with very little equity, but it was super nice in a nice neighborhood. And, uh, and that's just how it went. And interestingly enough, those are the houses we target today. Houses less than 10 years old, in very good condition, uh, with relatively low equity. So kind of looking at this scenario, because 
you you were just getting started. You didn't mm-hmm. know. I mean, you you sensed the motivation. He said, "Look, I just got to get out of this house." And you said immediately, "Turn the car around. Let's go." Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. Um, so you got there. You guys, you walked through the property and everything like that. Um, and you told him, "Hey, you know what? We can't make a cash offer because you don't have the equity, but you know we can possibly." you know, take over the payments and everything like that. And he was fine with that. Um, do you remember how much the uh, payments were monthly on a mortgage? I want to say the payments on that house were around $700, $750 a month. And our buyer's payments to us were around a thousand or so. So like I said, it was a couple hundred dollars a month in cash flow, uh, okay. two or $300 a month. It, it didn't have a tremendous amount of spread on it. But it was, like I said, it was a great house in a really nice area where people wanted to live. So, so that worked out to our advantage. And that's really the key today to me. If you're buying nice homes where people want to live, you'll sell those houses. So William, kind of share with us, um, you did all of the paperwork. Now the deed, was it transferred into your name or was it still deeded to the original owner, the seller? No, when, when we buy a house of subject to, we get the deed from, from our seller immediately. And that gets recorded. I mean, title transfers. And it, we use a trust for every transaction. We take title of trust. And I know that can get a little complicated for some people, but we don't hold anything in our personal names. Okay. All right. Great, great. I just wanted to clarify that for the uh, listeners. So now the deed is in your name. The mortgage or the loan is still in the seller's name. And then you went out and found a buyer. Where did you find Correct. this buyer? Where did you find this buyer? Uh, we we advertised in the paper. Actually, at that time, that's what we did. You know, nice home, owner will finance. Uh, your down payment qualifies you. Good, bad credit, it's all good. And that's what we did. So we found a buyer that had ten thousand down, and uh, they were they they looked at the house and they were ready to buy it. All right. So guys, you hear that? This was. William was doing this without the internet. This is newspaper. Um, So if he could do it with doing it in marketing in a newspaper, how much further can you guys go with the internet and social media and, and everything like that? So you got this first deal done. William, were you ever concerned that the buyer wouldn't make the payments? Oh, sure. Of course. So, I mean, and that's, and that's something that you've got to be conscious of. Uh, even today, you know, in your transactions. And that's why a smart investor uh, is going to take part of that down payment and bank it, okay? Uh, Mm -hmm. Three to six months of of payments, you want to keep those available to you at all times. In case your buyer doesn't pay, you're still able to fulfill that obligation that you made to your seller to make those payments on time because they're trusting you with their credit, you know, and that's important. So, and, and depending on what state you're in, uh, you may want to put more back. If you're in a state that's got a long foreclosure process or, or if, you're, if your buyer decides they want to dig in and you can't get them out, uh, then you've got to keep making those payments. But, you know, I was in Georgia and it was really easy to get somebody out of the house in Georgia. I mean, okay. even a foreclosure didn't take the 30 days there. So it's pretty wow, simple. Wow. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. So um, what was next after that first deal? Okay. You got the right idea. You're like, wow, this really works. 
what was next after that? Well, after that, I mean, we focused solely on sub twos and that's been uh, our, you know, 99% of our business model ever since. We, we like to take over payments. Now, if I can buy a house uh, really inexpensively, uh, we, we, we did some other stuff. We bought uh, some less expensive properties and fixed those up nice and turned those into rentals and did some of that stuff. But by and large, the nice homes, the 150, 200,000 and up houses, we're looking to take over payments. I mean, think about it, Marcus. I mean, even as an investor with excellent credit, I can't get loans in the 3% range. Long-term fixed financing, it's just not happening for us. But homeowners can do it every day. As a matter of fact, I read an article this morning uh, that said the uh, interest rates have dropped below 3% right now. Imagine that. Yep, uh, if you've yep. got financing, long-term 30-year fixed financing at less than 3% and you can sell it at 6 and 7%, uh, just making the money on the spread. There you go. Sounds great. Sounds great. So that is definitely a moneymaker uh, right there. So we went through the numbers. What were some of the challenges that you faced in that first deal? I mean, because I know, or if it wasn't the first deal, maybe another deal down the road, because I know everything isn't perfect. So kind of what's some of the, some of the things that made you scratch your head and be like, wow, I wasn't really ready, really prepared for this. Well, you know, I got to say, buying subject two has been a pretty simple thing. Uh, once you understand, you know, how the pieces work together and the best way to handle things, you have to be aware of the due on sale clause, which, you know, gives the bank the right to call the loan due at any time if they want to. Now, that's so, a big so, so real quick, William, let's, let's talk about that. So now I know that's one of the, the scariest things that people look at going into subject to investing. So explain the due on sale clause. Well, the due on sale clause uh, came into play uh, in the mid 80s when the after the interest rates got so high and people were assuming loans. You know, if you remember, uh, if you I, I wasn't investing during this time, but I, I was around. So I was aware of it. Uh, in the early 80s, you know, interest rates, I mean, people had negative amortizations on home loans because the interest rates were 18, 20%. Yep. Uh, so a lot of people, instead of you know, getting new financing, they were assuming. And the bank said, gee, we're losing a lot of money. We need to put something in here. We need to pretty much stop the whole assumable uh, loan thing that's going on. So they pretty much did that with something called a due on sale clause. And all that is, is it's a clause in your mortgage or your deed of trust or your security deed that says that if title ever transfers on this property, the bank has the right to demand full payment on the balance. Uh, now, there are certain exceptions to that, such as uh, in the death of the borrower, transfer to an heir, or the use of a land trust. So we utilize land trusts as a way to sort of, uh, if you will, skirt the due on sale clause. Is it 100% guarantee it'll work? Well, probably not, but this is what I've learned in 20 years. Most banks aren't interested in foreclosing on performing notes. They just right. want to get paid. Uh, I've been doing this 20 years. I've never had a loan call due. In, in fact, I put out the word several months ago to all investors that I knew that I had access to through Facebook or, that, or websites or whatever, saying, hey, if you have knowledge of a loan that's been called due, personal knowledge, let me know. 
I'd like to talk about it. And I only had a couple of responses and one guy that could actually confirm. I mean, it happened to him. So it wasn't hearsay. The, the chances of the do on sale clause getting, you know, enacted or called are so slim. Yes, it can happen and you should know about it. Uh, but chances of it happening if you handle insurance properly and make your payments properly are virtually nil. Okay. It's just it's just not going to happen. And that's and that's one of the things that that I tell people also uh, doing this for nearly ten years. I have never run into anyone that said, "Hey, you know what? The bank called my note due." Well, mm -hmm. I'm not a subject to expert by no means. Uh, but I talked to quite a few investors. And again, I've never heard that happen where the due on sale clause was triggered and the bank, you know, wanted to take the property or wanted all of the uh, balance paid, paid mm -hmm. due. So, okay, that's great. That's great to know because I know that was one of the things that's concerning to uh, some people. And it was something else that you said in there that, that really caught my attention, William. And that was when you when you're transferring everything over to the new buyer. Okay. Um, kind of walk us through that. How do you explain that to the new buyer? Yes. It's seller financing, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Who are you? You know, who's the original seller? How do they make their payments? Kind of walk us through that process. Well, we, we don't go into the details about how we bought the house or anything else. We advertise, whether that's through a website or Facebook marketplace or bandit signs that we do use in markets or, or you know, however we're advertising, also available for sale. Um, and, and, you know, when they contact us, it's yes, we do offer seller financing. We sell via a land contract. We don't transfer title to our buyers until they either refinance us or uh, they completely pay the loan. We, we maintain legal title, they get equitable title, which gives them all the benefits of home ownership. Uh, they get to do what they want with the property. They get to uh, claim a homestead exemption in their state as far as their taxes go. They get all the benefits of ownership, but we retain legal title. And, and that's really, in some states, that can make it easier to take property back if they fail to pay, but it's really more of a psychological sort of thing. Uh, we're just gonna hang on to this until you guys are able to refinance us or pay us off. You know, we're taking a chance on, on people that are credit challenged. And so we, we just wanna hang on to that legal title. That's just what we do. Uh, but we'll have a closing with an attorney in an attorney's office or title company, whatever the norm is in that mm -hmm. state. Uh, they'll bring their down payment to closing. They'll get all the regular documents, the land contract, uh, the disclosures, uh, HUD or ALTA form. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a regular closing. The only difference is they don't get a deed at that time. And then they get the keys to the house. They move in, live there, pay us. And uh, like I said, we put them with credit repair people and also a mortgage broker to encourage them to refinance. Our, our goal is to get this done in 36 months or less. Now, will everyone participate and work on credit repair? No, that's just how people are. Uh, but we don't mind collecting that three, four, five hundred dollars a month in cash flow for an ongoing period either. 
Okay. Because that was going to be one of my questions was how do you qualify the buyers? So, well, um, now, you know, Dodd-Frank changed things a little bit and you have to decide as an investor early on if you want to be Dodd-Frank compliant or not. Um, okay. You know, and there's some risk involved in that. No one's, they don't have Dodd-Frank police. No one's out there actively looking for investors who aren't compliant. But one of the things we do to qualify our buyers is run them through a mortgage broker. Uh, the mortgage broker takes care of some of the processing, they handle the paperwork, they pull the credit reports, and they give you a general idea of about how long it's gonna be before these people can qualify. And, uh, you know, we'll work with whoever has the down payment. Okay. Uh, and, but, and, uh, and guys, just to clarify, Dodd-Frank, you can look it up. It's really just legislation to prevent predatory lending. Um, so if you want to look more in depth into that, just Google it. Uh, we don't want to go deep into legislation because uh, that's not our forte. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, you have them meet with a credit counselor and a mortgage broker. Excellent. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, does is there anything specific on their credit where you would say, you know what, I don't think we want to want to go down this road with this tenant buyer? Is there not at all. Not, not at all. Uh, there are only a couple of things that will disqualify a buyer uh, with regard to, to buying a house from us. One is they have to have the down payment. We don't let people in with two or $3,000 into a house. If I'm selling you a $200,000 house, you're going to have to have uh, somewhere between fifteen dollars and $20,000 to get in that house. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. Somewhere between you know, eight to 10% is generally what we're looking for. The second thing is, uh, is, is history. Uh, not so much your credit history, uh, but as far as, as, as a, a criminal history that might prohibit you from being able to go out and, and get financing at some, at some point. And there are only a couple of things in there you know, that, that might do that. Uh, we don't want to devalue the property in any way, and that's right. Thing. So right. we look at a couple of different types of, of criminal activity that might prevent that. Okay. What about work history at all? Uh, yeah, work history is important, and it doesn't matter. It's, it's more being in the same industry. Um, if you've had, if if you've been, uh, let's just say, in in contracting or building. Uh, for the last 20 years, but you've worked for this company for two years and that one for two years and this one for six months. Uh, that's not going to, like I said, it, it's, it's industry. And I, I can okay. say that because I was in the restaurant industry for 20 years and there were periods of time when I worked for one company for six months and one for a year and then one for seven years. So, but, but I was in the same industry and, and I believe Traditionally, lenders will look at that overall, not how long you've worked for a company, but how long you've been in an industry. So we do look at that a little. Uh, we just want, to, want you to be able to make your payments. That's what's okay. in. So then, um, I'm not sure if this has ever happened, but I know after 20 years experience, it probably has happened. So how do you communicate to the seller if they are behind on payments? What What is the process um, in order to notify them and let them know, hey, you know, you're going down a road that we, you're not honoring the agreement, basically. Oh, our buyers? Yes. That's our buyers on our seller yes. finance houses. Uh, what I've learned over the years, Marcus, is when I got started, I was so hardcore. Uh, if, if a tenant uh, didn't pay me, we served a three-day notice, filed an eviction, went through the court process. What I've learned 
uh, over the years is it's best to try to work directly with people. Uh, let's let's take again the two hundred thousand dollar house example. Uh, if Joe has given me twenty thousand down and moved into a house and paid me for a year and a half, and all of a sudden he lost his job or he's getting a divorce and he can't pay me anymore, it's a lot simpler for me to go to Joe and try to work something out with him that allows him to uh, leave with his dignity, if that's what he needs to do, then try to force him out of the house. My chances of getting a house back in better condition, under better terms, uh, easier, is much greater if I approach Joe and say, hey Joe, I understand you know, you're, you're, you're splitting up or you've lost your job, whatever the case may be. Uh, how about this? Uh, you're going to need some money for starting over. I get it. Uh, how about, and I'll go take a look at the house or have somebody take a look at it. And we actually use a formula to do this. We'll go in and look at what he gave us down. If he gave us 20,000 down, we'll take half of that back out. Anything that needs to be done to get that house back into move-in condition. So let's say he gave us 20 grand down. We start at 10,000. The house needs paint and carpet. And I figure that's gonna cost me 5,000. Mm -hmm. So I'm at giving him 5,000 to vacate. Uh, and I'll start at a lower number. I may start at 3,000 say, hey, okay. what if we write you a check for three, you give us the house back in broom clean condition, you're out by the end of the month. And we'll negotiate up to that five, but it's a lot easier. It, I would rather write him the check for 3,000 than a lawyer. Right, right, gotcha. gotcha. So, so that's how we approach people that come into a bad situation in camp. We just try to give them something back to get started in an apartment or somewhere else and get the house back as quickly as possible. And that's great because that's, that's letting you know because over that time you built a relationship with this tenant buyer and you know sometimes unfortunate things do happen. I'll give you just a quick example. I have a uh, duplex and one of the tenants due to COVID was working at Bed Bath & Beyond hasn't worked in three months, you know, because the stores wasn't open. And she just told me, she was like, hey, um, well, she told the property manager, hey, I can't afford to continue paying because I'm not working. You know, I would rather just move out and break the lease, you know, and that's what we did. We allowed mm -hmm. her to break the lease. I even gave her, because she paid a month in advance, I even gave that month in advance money back to her so she can move you know, to another place, that's a lot better than saying, well, I don't care. You have a lease, you have to honor this lease, so on and so forth. And then they go in and they trash the house. And now you're paying right. for a lawyer to get them out, plus trying to fix up the house and yep. everything like that. So yeah, that's, that's very smart, William. So, so well, go ahead. It's, a, it's, it's just a better scenario. Uh, they'll work with you on showing the house to prospective new buyers. They'll get out of the house on time. You don't have to worry about them trashing the house and that nature. And then just just having to go in front of a judge and you know kicking somebody when they're down, judges frown on that. It's just a much better scenario to let somebody leave with their dignity. Yep, and, I, uh, I completely agree, completely agree. So let me ask you this, William. Um, what happens when you do have um, someone that does major damage to the property? Well, it, depending on the amount of damage they do, it could be an insurance claim or you may just have to come out of pocket. But remember, we talked earlier about banking part of that down payment for, you know, uh-ohs. 
Uh, maybe it's maybe a buyer that's not paying that won't move. Uh, it could be repairs that have to be made. But you know, that's that's just the reason you want to keep some of that money in reserve. Okay. All right. Don't so, just don't spend it all on an exotic trip. Put some of it in the bank. Yeah, yeah. You got to still be a little frugal, you know, when mm -hmm. you're doing this. Yeah. So William, what we're gonna do? We're gonna take a a brief break get a moment and hear from our sponsors and then we'll come right back. And then what I want to do next is um, talk about what do you see next and what do you see what's going on in the market and everything like mm -hmm. that. So we'll take a brief break and we'll be right back. PropString is the industry's number one tool for locating distressed properties and connecting with highly motivated sellers with hundred percent coverage across the U S PropString provides a deep dive into any property specific details making it easy to generate lists of distressed properties and contact to the owners. No other product or service can compare. Gain access to MLS property details like expired listings. You can pull accurate comps, even sale prices in non-disclosure states. This information is typically reserved for licensed real estate professionals, but is also available to you in PropStream. Gain access to unlimited nationwide property search, comparable home sales, targeted marketing lists, and owner contact lookup, built-in marketing tools, hundreds of filters to search and sort leads. Start your free seven-day trial now by going to proud.propstreampro.com slash we love it. Okay, welcome back, guys. We have William Tingle here, subject to investor from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he has 20 years experience um, in subject to investing. So William, now that we're back from our break, why would subject to investing be a good strategy for a novice getting started? Well, you know, I think it's a fine strategy for a novice. I, I think uh, the, the biggest problems that I see with people getting started uh, is just the only, like I said, potential problem that I would see was try, not getting completely educated on how it works. You know, you need to be aware of the pitfalls here. Uh, you know, you're taking over payments on somebody else's financing. They are trusting you with that. Um, you could not make payments and totally fry someone's credit. You know, I mean, if you're dealing with somebody in foreclosure, yeah, they probably have bad credit anyway, but you don't want to make it worse. You know, that's one of the selling points for what we do is that, hey, uh, if they're behind on payments, if their credit's been tarnished because of it, we're actually going to improve their credit. We're going to come in and make those payments on time and help build things back up. Uh, understand the process. It's, it's, it's great if you're starting out uh, and don't have a lot of money for down payments and that sort of thing. Uh, but do educate yourself completely. But, it, you know, as far as if you have bad credit, you can still buy houses. Uh, but you need to work on those things that have caused you to have bad credit. Absolutely. Okay, If not making your payments is something you have a history of doing, you need to change that uh, because people are going to be trusting you. But as far as things for a newbie, uh, you don't have to have great credit to buy as many houses as you want. You don't have to have a lot of money for down payments. Uh, but do educate yourself on the process. Okay. And then let me ask you this, um, William, what about finding that title company or that attorney to work with you as far as subject to investing? Because I know, you know, some, some attorneys, although they may be real estate attorneys, they may not have as much experience. Is there a certain kind of attorney that someone needs to find? Um, how do we go about that? Well, you will find attorneys or title companies that, that don't like it or don't want to do it, and that's okay. That's, that's 
part of the process. Uh, what I always encourage people getting started to do, if you're not a member of URIA, join URIA. You'll make contacts there. The networking is worth the cost of getting in. Uh, also, typically, a lot of times at URIA, their sponsors will be attorneys or title companies. And if not, at least people there that are already doing this can give you tips and leads on who you need to check out to do that sort of thing. When I got started, the closest RIA was two hours away in Atlanta. Uh, so I had to, you know, hit the pavement. I had to knock on doors and talk to lawyers. And, and Georgia's not a title company state, so it was all attorneys. What I found that is that if you're dealing with attorneys, get some of the older guys that have been around through the 70s and 80s. They know about all this creative stuff. The young people, they don't know much about it. So I would say hit the older guys because they've, they, they're familiar with creative financing. But join your RIA. That's the biggest advantage to finding the people for your team that you need, whether it's realtors, attorneys, title companies, contractors, uh, the, the other investors in the RIA will be able to tell you who to go to and who to stay away from. Okay. So now you, you mentioned, you mentioned realtors because I know realtors always want to do everything by the book, according to the book. I'm, I'm a licensed agent, a licensee. So I know, you know, kind of the stigma brokers put on doing some things creative, um, is doing this because, and I, I know the answer, but I want to make sure that everyone else knows the answer because some realtors will say, Hey, you know what, what you're doing is illegal. Kind of clarify that for us. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you'll have some attorneys tell you it's not legal, uh, but definitely agents and realtors, I'll tell you. Uh, yeah, when, when I first moved to Colorado Springs six months ago, one of the things we st wanted to start pursuing uh, was low equity, long days on market. MLS listings. We interviewed about, we, we must have talked to over 40 agents to get down to eight or 10 that we could actually sit down with to get down to a couple that we could work with. It was a process. But one of my favorite things to do nowadays is if I get an agent or attorney that a uh, real estate attorney, especially, that tells me subject to is illegal, I ask them, have you ever seen a HUD or an alpha? Uh, if, if they've ever closed a house, they've seen a closing seen, statement. Yeah. And so my next question is, well, what about lines 203 and 503 on the HUD, which says existing loans taken subject to? What do you think that means? That's exactly what we do. And it's right there on the closing statement. So that's my response to agents and attorneys now that tell me something is illegal. Well, that's, that's a good rebuttal because you're saying, hey, you know what? Here's the legal ramifications right here in the HUD in the settlement statement that says, you know, properties can be bought subject to, you that's know, right. so <laughs> that's a good way to, uh, you know, give them a smack. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> tell me, William, what do you see? Um, what do you see next? And kind of especially with everything going on in our environment now, what do you see next with subject to investing? And well, I'll tell you, Marcus, I don't think much is going to change. You know, everybody was concerned. And, and anytime you come in, I mean, COVID's a new situation. So everybody, even me, you know, I've been doing this for a while, but I still, you know, so I want to be a little bit more cautious in this market. But everything I see, the properties are moving quickly. My sub two students are buying houses left and right. 
Uh, I think the forbearance thing we're in right now, a lot of lenders immediately gave three, four, six months forbearance. There's some questions right now on whether they're going to demand all of that money due and payable at the end of the forbearance period. I think what we're going to see is, is most of them agreeing to roll that onto the back end of the, of the financing because if not, there's just going to be millions and millions of homes in foreclosure. Uh, whether they roll it to the back or they don't, it's still going to be an excellent environment for us. Uh, if they don't roll it to the back, there's going to be a lot of people that have thousands of dollars due and payable they're never going to be able to make because they've been out of work. They haven't had the access to the cash. Uh, if they roll it to the back, you're still going to have people that want to sell. Uh, I, I think it's always going to be a good environment for sub two. Taking over payments on existing financing is always going to be uh, a great opportunity. And there are always going to be people that need to buy uh, with seller financing. Self-employed people uh, or people that have recently, recently been divorced or in bankruptcy or have medical bills and issues, they're always going to need financing. I mean, some of the biggest lenders right now, even for their A-list borrowers, people with 740 credit scores and above, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they're requiring 20% down yeah. on financing. I'll let them in a house for 10% down. I've got a whole new market of people that I can sell to. I mean, if you have a 740 credit score and you can buy one house in this neighborhood with bank financing, but you have to have 20% down, or you can buy a house next door to it, same house, for 10% down, even if you have great credit, which way are you going to go? Yeah, so. 10% all day. Keep that other 10% sure. in my pocket. That's, you know? that's exactly right. <laughs> when you're talking about a $300,000 house, that's 30000 you get to keep in your pocket. Yep. Uh, that lets the missus buy new furniture and, and all that other stuff that she wants. And then you can turn around and refinance it in a year or so, and you're going to get to write that difference in interest off between what I would charge and Bank of America. You're going to write that off on your taxes anyway. So that's, I mean, it's a smart strategy, you know. Yeah. So seems like you're well positioned, William, to do some more things um, and get some more deals. So what we're going to do now we're going to roll into our hot seat round, which is our hot seat. We're going to put William on a hot seat here real quick. So, William, answer these questions for me um, as quickly as possible. But remember, there's no time constraints. Starting <laughs> over, what would you do differently? Listen, I, I had the unique opportunity uh, 10 years ago to do that very thing. When I, I got a divorce and I moved out of the country and for uh, a year or so, I didn't do anything. I said, you know, I've got an opportunity here to, you know, a lot of times we ask ourselves in life, gosh, if I could start over, I would do this. Or if I could start over, I would do that. And that's exactly what I did. I started my business all over in 2010. And I said, I'm not doing any stuff I don't like. I'm only going to do things I like. The stuff that worked, but I didn't like, or there, it's out. Uh, and I quit renting. I quit lease optioning. I quit flipping. I quit doing rehabs. All I did was buy subject to and sell with seller financing. So I've done that. I did that 10 years ago, and that's all we do today. I would buy with subject to. I would sell with seller financing. I wouldn't be a landlord. Uh, I would be the bank. Okay. Nobody calls me when Junior flushes a hot wheel. Right, right. You know, that's right. So that's exactly, so, I got the opportunity to do that. So I did it. So it's more so going, focusing deeper versus 
versus wider. So you're going right. to focus just strictly on subject two and leave everything else, you know, That's right. outside of your parameters. Okay, smart, smart. Um, what do you think is your greatest commodity outside of capital? Uh, it's, it's the team. It's the people that you work with. Uh, it's it's an agent that knows what you're doing and doesn't think sub two is illegal. It's your attorney uh, that when you call him up and say, hey, I want to change something. I want to start doing this instead of that. You see any reason we can't do it? And he says, I don't know any law against it. Let's try it and see what happens. Yep. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's your team. It's, it's your people. You know, I tell students that all the time, especially about insurance, when they'll tell me, well, I bought this sub two and I'm trying to change the insurance and the insurance company I call doesn't want to do this or that. They say, I can't have it this way. So you don't have the right person. You need no. your guy that knows exactly what you're doing and will do it the way you want. So it's, it's definitely the team, the people that you work with. There you go. There you go. Okay. What is one thing you can do to be more productive? More productive? Gee, Marcus, I'm lazy. Uh, you know, I, that was one of the things that we changed. We said, you know, do you know that you can make over half a million dollars a year buying one house a month? And, and that's all that we look for is one house a month. I talked to a, a guy this, this morning about our joint venture partner program, and he was talking about wanting to buy three or four houses a month. And I said, why? Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to work that hard? Uh, being more productive, uh, I'll tell you seriously, though, uh, one of the things that we've done to increase our productivity uh, is we recently started using a product uh, called REI Black Book, uh, where you just funnel all of your leads that haven't worked out or they aren't ready to sell to you. Uh, we actually started using that and the follow-up sequences and things like that are, are just amazing. But that's the biggest thing that we've done this year to help us with our productivity. It's just trying to capitalize on otherwise leads that would fall through the cracks. It's been a joke uh, with me and my students for years that my follow-up, my CRM has been a legal pad. Legal pad, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but now we're actually we're actually doing some automated stuff. So we're looking forward to that. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. So technology. Uh, what drives your ambition, William? Gee, that's a tough question there, Marcus. I, I just, uh, I don't know, I just really enjoy real estate a lot. Uh, I've always been a pretty ambitious person. You know, I left school in ninth grade, so I, mean, I don't have a degree. And I started as a dishwasher in a restaurant, and by the time I left my restaurant career, you know, I was the director of operation for three states, so, and making wow. a pretty good salary. So, I mean, ambition's never been a problem for me. Right now, I just really enjoy what I do. I enjoy teaching and enjoy just uh, dealing with sellers and putting buyers in houses and that sort of thing. So, I just enjoy what I do. All right. And then what do you believe is your greatest challenge, internal or external? challenge focus for me uh, my wife and I were actually just talking this morning about uh, you know about our business and where we want it to go and you know how we actually run a couple of different businesses we teach and coach and and also do real estate and just trying to decide you know where we want to focus more on in the future uh, there's just so many things to do you know what I mean yep, and you want to do them all you know, but we like to travel too. So just trying to decide. And that's, that's really part of the, the fun thing about what we do is we don't hate our jobs at all. Uh, we love it. So we just want to do so many different things. It's just trying to focus. That's the biggest challenge. for me. And that's, that's that entrepreneurial mindset. You get this, this bright idea, you're creative mm -hmm. and it's like, 
okay, let me go and try that. You know, let me go and do that. And then you say, oh, wow, you know what? Now from doing that, I see what we could do this, you know? So mm-hmm. I have that same struggle, you know, is <laughs> that that creativity and, and always want to get out there and do something fresh and something mm-hmm. new. Okay, William, lastly, what is the latest business or real estate book or article or podcast or something like that that you've read, listened to, or something that really intrigued you? Gee, I don't know. Well, your podcast, I, I just stumbled on your podcast here. I, I, I'm loving it. Uh, also right. like mine too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, why don't you share with us, um, Will, what, what's, what's your podcast? Uh, my podcast is the Sub 2 Deal Show. And uh, we, we try to focus on Sub 2. There's so much out there, though. Uh, you know, I have uh, originally started it giving tips on Subject 2, how to talk to sellers, how to fill out paperwork, how to do that stuff. We've sort of taken it in a new direction the last several months. Uh, I've started interviewing real estate investors across the country. And we ask them the same questions. You know, what's working in your market? How do you do this? How do you do that? And it just gives you a perspective. We interview investors that are in their first year of investing all the way up to full-time investors, you know, that are buying, you know, 50 houses a year. And, and so it, it, I think it really helps people with seeing that anybody can do this all walks of life, all different markets and locations. Uh, but it, we really enjoy that. And I enjoy talking to these guys because I mean, they're all just really excited about real estate. And uh, like I said, men, women from all parts of the country and all different types of backgrounds. Sounds great. Well, William, I really appreciate it. Man, it was an awesome, awesome, awesome opportunity to speak with you, man, and and really, really hang out with you. For those who are listening that want to get in touch with you, kind of run the gambit, give me your podcast again, give me your Facebook, Instagram, you know, everything. How can we get in touch with you, even if you want to be a student? Yeah, great. Well, uh, if you, we have a, a Facebook group, uh, the Sub2 Forum, you can get there by going to www.sub2forum.com. That's S-U-B, the number two, forum.com. It'll take you right to the Facebook group. Uh, if you want to listen to the podcast, you can, of course, find us on Apple or Stitcher or Google or any of those mediums like that. Uh, it's just the Sub2 Deal Show, or you can go directly to our website at sub2podcast.com. It says you be the number two podcast.com. If you're interested in articles or resources or looking at our products, you can go to our website at sub2deals.com. It says you be the number two deals.com. And uh, if you have any questions for me or want to contact me, I'm on Facebook. Uh, You can look for William Tingle or come to our group. All right. Sounds great. Sounds great. So guys, you have all of that information. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. So when you get an opportunity, make sure you go on those show notes, reach out to William Tingle, especially if you're looking to get into subject to investing or just investing in general. He has over 20 years experience. Um, and he also did it virtually from Belize. We didn't even touch into that. Um, so I may have to have you back on William and talk about how you were doing it, you know, cross seas. So William, again, I want to thank you. Great job. Excellent opportunity to to speak with you, man. And um, guys, without any further delay, I want to thank you. Always remember to enjoy the journey. 
All right, guys, that was William, Mr. William Tringle, uh, Tingle, I'm sorry, who was the subject to investor. Uh, I know I had some other subject to investors on, uh, like Joe Bodek and um, someone else. I can't remember right off the top of my head. But, you know, this is a, a great strategy for those who have little to no money. So you can definitely get in there and get started with little or no money because we're all about making sure you know that you guys win we want you guys to win we want you guys to make money we want you guys to be successful so you can leave a legacy for your family so without further delay without further ado i just want to tell you guys thank you thank you for joining me i really appreciate the we love equity listeners and the we love equity family if you have any questions or anything like that feel free to reach out. All right, guys, remember to enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to today's show. I picked up some great actionable items and I'm sure you did as well. If so, let me know. You can always reach me via social media at facebook.com slash MRCS Maloney, Twitter at MRCS Maloney, and of course, IG at MRCS Maloney. You can also always reach me via email at M Maloney at equityri.com. Make sure you reach out to our guest as well. You can always find their contact information in the show notes below. If you have not subscribed already, what are you waiting for? Join the family. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review. This is how we tell if we're providing you with what you need for your journey. If there's someone you would like for me to interview, or if there's a subject matter you would like for me to cover, please let me know. Finally, if you're looking for additional information about real estate investing, go to equityrealestateblog.com, also youtube.com slash Marcus Maloney. Until next time, family, always enjoy the journey.